Hi, I'm Mark Kent. And I'm Jacob Pusey. And you're listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you climb and you see to what is episode six of the Art and Science of Running podcast. Um, I'm here today with Jacob again, uh, but we've kind of swapped location. So we're not uh, in a clinic this week. We're not in my uh, basement this week. We're back to Jacob's basement. And yeah, it feels like a while since we've been here actually yeah. uh, doing a podcast. <laughs> but yeah, it feels good to come into Canmore actually, which kind of makes me think uh, straight off the bat, like one of the things that is on my head before we even get going into the meat of it is um is recently you raced i was really intrigued by that because i, I believe that the uh the podium of that race was basically coaches is that right <laughs> yeah it, <laughs> it was uh, uh i ran a, a trail half marathon at the canmore nordic center here in uh, canmore alberta uh that's the site of the 1988 olympics and a lot of other winter olympics and a lot of other uh world cup cross-country and biathlon ski competitions so it's it's just an extraordinary venue uh, i can't think of a better backdrop but uh yeah coach eric who we've mentioned on this podcast before eric reyes uh he and i were battling it out for quite a while and then also uh coach cal Zaritsky, who is i think a five-time world xterra triathlon champion um and he's a coach um of hopefully a future guest that we'll have as well um, at Critical Speed. He has a, a coaching um, company and, and center, I believe, in the in Calgary. So, yeah, we, were <laughs> we all ended up on the podium, um, and we've, we've seen and raced against one another before, but it is actually rare that because we coach for, that we're <laughs> all able to, like, toe the line as well because we... We spend a, a fair bit uh, time <laughs> coaching, uh, in my case, parenting or race directing as well. So, um, yeah. So, so I guess like on the one level, that's great because that's like a validation that the coaches know what they're doing, <laughs> <laughs> and they can uh, they can at least manage their own training. At uh, the very <laughs> least, we we know what it feels like to hurt in a race setting. Like that, uh, that was intentional uh, for me. I'm trying to kick off a, a marathon block, and so it was kind of like. Okay, this is this is the transition from my base training, if you will, of the summer of just kind of like fitting in training where I can to a more focused, structured uh, training, and so this was meant to kind of kick, <laughs> test where I'm at, but also kick my butt so that I like to kind of prime me for future stimuli uh, <laughs> over the next couple of months. So, and then the next thing that kind of pops into my head is um, is kind of like what I would view as kind of a bit of like small mild pressure actually that if you turn up to um a relatively local ish race yeah. and um and and uh and people know you're a coach and kind of think that you, you know you're going to do well um obviously yeah is, does that like register before the race that you're like that you you think of yourself as a coach before going to the start line or 
Um, honestly, I I race so infrequently these days that I, I really just relish every time I get to pin a bib on. Um, and it's not that I don't love to race. It's just I have six kids. Uh, this is a really busy season, time of year for our family because we do direct multiple races, uh, not just in the area, but throughout the entire country. And uh, so a lot of weekends are taken up already. And um, so I don't... I don't know that it's pressure so much, but, but there is, yeah, there is that I've got to save face. Uh, in terms of nervousness in this area specifically, it, I, it's stressful because you don't really know who's going to show up. Yeah, there right. are yeah. a lot of strong road and multi-sport athletes around here, but even more unnerving than that is that there are a lot of just like intense mountain and Nordic athletes around here that, that you may not even, you know, cross paths with um on the trails or on the paths because they're they're training for nordic skiing or cross-country skiing and uh and at least from a f- exercise physiology standpoint they they break um <laughs> they set all the standards they're the outliers in terms of lactate threshold and vo2 max and stuff like that and and there are tons of olympians walking around town that you know have other jobs sometimes so you never know who you're going to bump into. And a lot of times they'll jump into a race and there's, they have huge engines and really strong legs. And so they do quite well when they transition to trails. Uh, but they, they don't view themselves as runners and, and you maybe wouldn't pick them up off the streets thinking that they were runners. Uh, and, uh, so sometimes they'll toe the line and you don't know who they are. And you're just like, how come I can't drop this guy uh, or this gal? <laughs> and they're just out there for a workout. So, uh, it, it I have been humbled multiple times, even at the local races, probably more at the local races than at international races. You usually know who you're towing the line against at a big marathon. It's, it's totally unknown. Uh, there, there are usually more than a handful of people that could win any given race around here. So, and, uh, just as a, on a final, just like, um, sort of tongue in cheek, uh, when you're racing with Eric and, um, uh, is there a part, is there even a thought in your head? Like, I got to just like, make sure he knows who's boss. <laughs> No, um, uh, there's a huge sense of pride that I get from, from seeing how much Eric has progressed. I mean, Eric wasn't even a runner five, six years ago, and we started working together about four years ago, as I mentioned, and he's now a sub 230 marathoner and, uh, and he's knocking on the door of, you know, my best marks and, and he has, he's, he's run quite well at, you know, national mountain running championships, ultra running championships, like he's. Um, so there's a huge sense of pride and, and to be completely honest though, like I thought he was going to beat me. Like, I, I don't know that I told him that, um, (laughs) but I was breathing a lot harder than he was when we were especially beginning to climb. And I was hoping to actually do it as kind of like a fasted run or at least not try and take in fuel during the race to prepare for that on a marathon day, um, to go long stretches. And by like 5k, I was just like, okay, my heart rate's all over the place. Uh, I'm breathing really hard. I'm already beyond what I've told my athletes not to do. Like I, I'm, I'm redlining already and Eric's sitting on my shoulder and wasn't even like, you couldn't even hear him breathe. And he was right down my neck the whole time. So I figured, you know, he was going to break me and I was okay with that given how my training has gone um, because it really has just been put in what I can, whether that's pushing a stroller or marking a course for a race or whatever, just trying to put in whatever volume I could. But, uh, 
I was I was pleasantly surprised and quite relieved <laughs> when I looked back and uh, didn't see him. But it, at the same time, I, I honestly was worried because I thought maybe... He tripped or something. Yeah. I really yeah. had. Like, I, I had actually... I've run a race on that same network of trails, and, and one of the guys I was running against hit his head on a tree Oof. and, like... Yeah passed out and because it's yeah. it's quite technical in there and we were it was really tight and twisty and he just disappeared and so he's like oh man where did did i did i do something to eric where's eric you know <laughs> anyway but it, I, I was really proud of him and i was uh, it, it's always fun to get to spend time with him so yeah awesome cool 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 i know you've got some uh, some stuff lined up for me here so <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh enough about me what have uh, what have you been up to what how are things going in the clinic and and yeah. as far as some of the athletes that you're coaching remotely or or with runscribe what's going yeah. on with you yeah it's um it's been an interesting time um yeah various uh, runners um uh, having a crack at um at their goals and um some of those have been domestic and uh and in one particular case, uh, some of them that we both know and has uh, has been abroad and uh, in in a world championship race, trying to do the best they can do and to certainly aiming to run a personal best as well. And that runner did run a personal best, um, which is not easy in a championship race, as you would know. Uh, you get all kinds of other uh, strange tactics happening and um, uh, you know, people vying for uh, placing at the end of the race, that kind of stuff. So, um, and when there's teams involved, it gets a little bit more tactical still. So, um, yeah, that that runner was able to run a almost ten minute personal uh, best in the fifty k, which is which is good going. Uh, and uh, yeah, in sort of recent events, um, obviously one of the uh, better known runners um, who uses the technology, uh, Runscribe technology that I always <laughs> talk about all the time. Uh, he has ju- just broken the world record in the half marathon, so um, uh, that was really cool to see as well. Um, a lot of a huge amount of work went into that, and he was an athlete that um, I think I'm I'm, yeah, I'm certain I'm correct in saying that uh, had a lot of compromises in his training to help other people. So often when that happens, you don't expect that uh, uh, that the athlete can then go on and once given the opportunity, will then go on and break a world record. So that's really awesome for him. And what's his name again? And his, so his name is, uh, to pronounce it correctly, as it should be in Kenyan, is Joffrey uh, Kamoral. And um, yeah, he's, he goes on to the marathon now, so we'll see what he can do in a marathon. I'm sure there's a lot of people quite scared out there of what he could do in a marathon. Because uh, originally he started out as a very, very big, strong uh, cross-country runner. So um, <laughs> yeah, people might have written him off and are now kind of thinking twice about that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, there's uh, obviously the clinic work always rolls on every week, and we have some interesting people who have been passing through the clinic recently, and we've been lucky to have some people not just from different parts of uh, Canada, but um, but also people people um, that we know in particular who have come from the US, and uh, we had a lady in uh, last week who's probably the smartest person that we we've ever worked with. <laughs> she could pretty much write an autobiography, I think, on her life. Um, and yeah, she was fantastic. And what's interesting about that, actually, that I could spin off just quickly on, is that um, is that there's two components to what I've done with her. So firstly, she has sensors that she runs with that allows me to watch her running, monitor her running uh, week in, week out. And then she was able to come to the clinic in Calgary where last week I did a full clinical gait analysis so that I can do things in person that I couldn't normally do. And that's a really unique thing, a really, really super cool thing that doesn't normally happen. So usually I'm working with people remotely. I will never, ever get to measure and test them uh, hands-on. So a uh, really cool data set there. 
and um, it just means that for a complicated case it, you can really pull apart exactly what's happening because you've got all the data you could possibly have you know the real world data over weeks and then you've got the clinical stuff and um, yeah she definitely had a sort of uh, various uh, things happening um, with her and had been through some real ups and downs I think in the past um, but had some great clinical support where she uh, in, in the city that she's from and so I was really confident like yeah you know, we can we can pull this apart and really figure out what's going on and and really help you out here so uh, that was really satisfying because mm-hmm. uh, the most unsatisfying in a clinic is to not get to the root cause of what's going on yeah and and just kind of like start um, and just start firing uh, you know shotgun pellets <laughs> the, the, uh, at the problem but uh, and then uh, yeah there's been um, some good progress with the technology front as well and um, I'll probably speak about that more in uh, in some future episodes but um, um, there's some real some really interesting stuff happening the technology market is there's always new players coming into it and trying to um, uh, bring different business models or different angles to the te- technology so you know if you're in that market you, you're forced to always keep looking at how we can change and how we can improve so mm-hmm. that's pretty cool yeah as well yeah yeah <laughs> that's exciting so Kamuro uh, is that how Kamuro yeah um, yeah so we we s- spoke about his group a bit um, was that episode two where we talked about group yeah, training and was, in running yeah. um, in, in Kenya and so if you haven't listened to that episode, be sure to check that out. We, we do talk a, a little bit about um, some of how that group has been successful. And, and as Malk mentioned uh, just now and, and previously, uh, many of the athletes in that group are wearing the RunScribe sensors yeah. um, so that... Or have done at some point. Or have, uh, yeah. so that, so that uh, Malk can remotely <laughs> see what they're doing and potentially... Um, suggest things to their physio or to mm-hmm. other members of their team mm-hmm. uh, if maybe they need to switch up the footwear they're wearing or if if there's a concern where that there might be an injury coming up. Um, that's something you've been doing for me uh, recently as well and, and also that a previous guest, uh, Alex, has been helping with as well. Um, so it is nice to have that technology. And then um, what you were, the, the gal you were referring to earlier, um, I had a chance to reconnect with her as well because she was here for the the Five Peaks trail running women's retreat as well, and uh, I I agree that she is one of the the most educated women, uh, most educated people uh, that we we both work with. Um, and what's nice is that because she has that level of education and she has the science background, um, even though I I've spent way more time in school than I would like to admit. Um, I was able to refer her to you because I felt like she could be better served and, and, and together we could better serve her. Um, and you, you may be able to speak to some of the, the metric, uh, questions that she has better than I, I can. Uh, I don't have a hard science, um, at least advanced degrees in the hard sciences. And, and so, um, the fact that she comes from a, a physics background and you have a physics background, I figured the two of you could enjoy that, uh, that common uh, thread, but it was really nice to to speak with her uh, after the visit with you and and see that you know she she feels like um, she has more answers than questions now and and that that there's a road forward because uh, like many runners um, we often have 
either chronic injuries or, or some sort of niggle that, <laughs> that won't go away and we're not sure where it's even stemming from. And so the fact that uh, through that combination of remote gait analysis and then the clinical um, analysis and this longitudinal um, interaction, we're able to uh, help some of these people either prevent future injuries or even overcome some of these long-term uh, injuries or or at the very least inconveniences that they may be experiencing. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and speaking from personal experience, um, it really has been beneficial to when occasionally you'll send me a note and say, hey, I noticed, <laughs> um, actually I was trying to preview the course that I was going to be racing and I was wearing a different <laughs> pair of shoes than I had been wearing with the RunScribe sensors and and, you know, I get an email later that day or maybe the next day, like, hey, what was going on yesterday? Like, something looked really off. Uh, and, I, you know, I had to explain, well, I was doing a little bit of bushwhacking, but I was wearing a different uh, profile issue than I, than I often do. And um, so that's just really helpful to not only be able to see it for myself, but also have someone like Malk be able to interpret that data and give me a heads up. Um, so I didn't wear those shoes for the rest of the week. It, it may not have just been the shoes, but I, mm -hmm. I figured, you know, why risk it? Why go into the race with it compromised, you know? So I tried to recover from that day and, and went in. Um, and unfortunately, I, I was actually really looking forward to wearing the, the RunScribe sensors in my race. And I, um, I packed all my trail shoes <laughs> in, in my truck just to see yeah. what the conditions were like. And, and, my car and I even brought the t sensors, but the carriages were on my road shoes. And so I was like, ah, I, I did such a good job of not wearing my trail shoes for the rest of the week that uh, I didn't even have the carriages. So apologies for that. I was looking forward to seeing and learning from that data as well. So, But thank you for your help with that. Um, awesome. So today we wanted to talk about a, a question that we, we often receive um, about training and training metrics and effort. And uh, I feel like we, we can approach it from a number of different angles. Um, but one of, the, one of the questions that we receive a lot has to do with heart rate. And um, training by heart rate, racing by heart rate, uh, training zones, um, how that all works and and I, it is related to some other topics that, that we'll hopefully be able to discuss in future episodes as well um, but uh, just from a, a general overview uh, do you mind explaining just kind of how how heart rate monitors or sensors uh, work yeah on a watch um, yeah how does that work from, from a technology technology standpoint yeah. yeah so without boring everybody like uh, in, <laughs> and making this into kind of a uh, 10 a.m sleep uh, podcast um so uh there's space today uh, in existence there are two fundamental ways that you can measure heart rate um with the technology so uh the classical method that's been around for a, a long time decades is to wear um a device uh, usually um, what we call a chest strap device and the idea is it's going to have two um, uh, two key parts on the back of that device that are going to contact the skin and um, you know call them electrodes or whatever you want to call them and what you what that um, device is trying to pick up is the electrical signal that is related to um, the heart the heart uh, pumping and and the pulse that's created out of that and so you can imagine that that device picks up um, a sort of electrocardio cardio signal 
um, kind of like you might see in a hospital uh, cardiac signal where it's just kind of spiking up, down, up, down, up, down with, um, with the pulsing of the heart rate. And so that is essentially kind of the raw signal that the device receives. And um, uh, it's a very simple, in theory, and it's a very simple uh, algorithm that can just turn that into, okay, how many peaks were measured or, or what have you, were measured in one minute. Um, so to convert to BPM of heart rate is relatively straightforward. Now, um, as I found out, you know, doing the field testing work with Garmin, it depends on the person's heart. <laughs> so uh, uh, some people's hearts <coughs> provide a more clear uh, electrocardio signal than others. <laughs> so um, uh, for that reason, you can then refine the algorithms to, um, to better isolate exactly um, that peak signal uh, per pump of the heart. Um, and um, yeah, anyone who's ever had sort of heart troubles in, in the past will, will know that um, yeah, not, not all hearts are created equal. Some uh, pump stronger than others and, and some pump with a cleaner signal. So, so that's kind of the classical method. Um, and uh, <coughs> people will know also that um, because it's kind of like an, an electrotype um, arrangement, um, you can increase uh, conductivity of the signal and pick up the signal if the back of that sensor, or I should say the back of the device, is wet. So um, uh, if you have very dry skin, for example, and um, and you don't do anything to change that, then again, it can be harder for the device to pick up a clean signal. So uh, one of the classical things is if people are struggling with a signal pickup, you can just literally, you know, use <laughs> use your uh, your tongue and your thumb and uh, and actually wet the back of the device, and you'll, you'll start to pick up the signal better. And then uh, more recently, since uh, if I get my figures right here, since uh, let's say 2013, there has been another option, and um, this kind of gets away from needing a heart rate strap, is um, uh, the wrist-based heart rate system, which uh, uh, a company called Mio uh, first, I believe they're a Scandinavian company, I'm pretty sure it's a Scandinavian company, uh, or originally uh, came up with the concept, and then it was something that Garmin bought in to, and just kind of integrated into the watches. And what's going on there is that uh, uh, as uh, blood pulses through um, the blood vessels, uh, uh, so through the arteries and then the veins, it essentially changes the, the colour. Because when you've got oxygenated blood versus non-oxygenated blood, there's, there's a difference in colour, right? So um, uh, the optical heart rate system was developed to pick up that very quick changing colour that happens and can be measured in certain parts of the body as that that wave or pulse of of blood goes past and and that's your oxygenated blood of course and um so that's essentially the basis for if you can if you can have an optical sensor that can uh, pick that up accurately then you have essentially an optical way of measuring the person's heart rate because again you just convert it to how many times that happened in uh, in a minute and um and so yeah if you look on the back of these uh uh, recent uh, watches, whoever the manufacturer is, but uh, you'll see that there's the optical sensor there, and it will actually be sending out um, some light. So you'll notice that you know if you kind of point it at something, you see that there's some light coming out the back yeah. of the watch, and so um, and so that's what it's looking for is that light goes out and is disturbed by that that wave of, um, of 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 energy in the in the blood vessel, and then the light is comes back and is received. So. Uh, so that is the basis of optical heart rate measurement, and um, P 
people might agree or disagree, but uh, my belief is today it's still not there. It's not as accurate today as uh, the electrocardio method. So, um, uh, and, and I get people in the clinic all the time or you know, or just people crossing my path all the time who complain about the, the wrist-based heart rate is not quite there. It's either it's either it's consistently during a run five or 10 beats off, or it just comes in and out. You know, it's, it's accurate, then it's not accurate, then it's accurate. Um, you've probably seen this more than I have, but when you do upload the data to, you know, Training Peaks Final Search or whatever it is, I, I, I'll often see that in the first, I don't know, the first few Ks of the run, I mean, the heart rate is not accurate at all. It's completely wild. And then at some point it will, it will tune in and you'll be like, oh, that's accurate heart rate right there. <laughs> um, and, you, and you sort of like, had to almost mentally clean up the data because there's just sections where that um, uh, heart rate is accurate. One of the interesting kind of caveats, I won't go on too much about this, but when um, when we were testing the uh, optical heart rate system, because it's not Mio anymore, it's, it's it, that was an original system that Garmin have moved away from to another one. But um, And if people want to read more, they can go to First Beat. Um, is, a, is, is a company that will tell you all about this. But uh, one of the early problems was with the skin colour or skin tone. Mm-hmm. So people who had uh, dark pigmentation in the skin, uh, we just couldn't pick up the <laughs> we couldn't pick up the heart rate properly, and um, and that's all part of the beta testing, is you know you try and work those bugs out, and um, it caused quite a few headaches like uh, early on, you know so if someone turned up with real pale skin no problem at all could pick up the heart rate, <laughs> but um, yeah you know if someone of uh, African origin um, was part of the test uh, group test procedure then um, yeah really struggled to pick up the heart rate accurately. I, I've heard that tattoos can get in the way as well, yeah, probably 100%. for the same reason. So yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. Because if you have a tattoo on your wrist, you uh-huh. need, you should wear it on the other wrist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not going to pick it up. Then. Yeah, that's absolutely true. No, that uh, makes total sense. Uh, anything at all that gets in the way of that uh, light-based uh, signal, for sure. Um, so yeah, so getting back to today, as we stand today, two thousand nineteen, um, uh, it isn't as accurate as the um, as the classical method, for sure. But it is getting there, and it's like anything, it's a matter of time until it is as good. And when it is, we can just ditch these heart rate straps that are, quite frankly, annoying, because they rarely ever stay in position. They always want to fall down over time. <laughs> and so, um, um, yeah, that's the, that's the evolution of, of, of course, watches. That uh, you know, we, we get more and more to only having a watch and having no other peripheral sensors, of course, yeah. Nice. So, um, in terms of the algorithm... Yes, um, yeah. Do you want to touch on that, or do you want me mm. to discuss it? Um, I can tell you at the real kind of high level, basic level, for, sure. for, for folks listening. Yeah. Um, so and this goes beyond heart rate. It goes to many things that we'll get into later in, in maybe other episodes. Uh, I can tell you that in, in, a, in a company that's producing a watch, whatever the company is, uh, they do not want to be liable. They do not want to be, you know, have a lot of negative PR about, you know, this doesn't work and this isn't accurate and whatever. They, they want to sell watches and have credibility. And so what that means is when you get into processing the data into something actionable, whatever that metric is, and people will know if they have a Garmin watch, that things will pop up on the watch after about a kilometre, you'll have something, say, plus, plus one or minus two or whatever it is. All of these kind of metrics in this family of, 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 of metrics, uh, the watch manufacturer has essentially defaulted to, um, to well-known equations. Uh, they don't want to get into hot water of like developing their own and then backing that up. So uh, in the process of generating the algorithms, the people involved will go and 
search pu published papers and look at what is most heavily published and um, they think is they think has become uh, normal default and that's going to be the basis of the algorithm that goes into the watch so what that means unfortunately because if you go if you dial down academically to where that's coming from it's coming from studies studies are very small populations of runners in control conditions um, so when you see something on a watch that really isn't you specifically you know that is that is a very very simplistic model or algorithm that was driven originally by some studies that <laughs> that yeah. didn't take into account huge extremes or individuals or you know around the world whatever so you have to i mean i mean it, everyone listening i'm sure knows this already but you're taking it with a pinch of salt because um, half the time these metrics pop up on the watch and it beeps and you look at it and you're like, that is not, there's no way that's true, you know? And, um, and that applies, uh, that can apply to heart because a lot of these things are heart rate related. So, um, you'll have a metric that you'll be like, hmm, I wonder what that, I wonder how they got that number. And of course, what is happening is the watch is measuring your heart rate over a period of time. In some cases it can compare to previous heart rate trends from other, um, recorded runs. It's also taken into account pace and stuff like that, and then it's generating this um, uh, this number at the end of it. So, um, so heart rate does go into is folded into a bunch of these things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, I mean, on a on a very basic level, some of those equations would simply be the the standard way of uh, determining what max heart rate yep. is, which is two hundred and twenty beats per minute minus your age. Absolutely. And yeah. so, yeah. Um, if we have a, a 40 year old, that's, that means their max heart rate would be 180. That's one of the very first things that you're asked when you set up an app for your phone or an app for recording anything, yeah. um, is what's your birth date. <laughs> so, yeah. so then they, then they derive yeah. what your max heart rate should be based 100%. on, based on that general, yep. uh, yeah. I don't know, ge general knowledge. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's, that's the average of what, what that would be. Yeah. Um, the challenge is that we are all individuals, and um, I I know that I I have never fit into any of those algorithms, and so maybe I take it personally. <laughs> uh, but I am an outlier on just about any study I read. I, I read up on everything, but I I know whether it has to do with heart rate or VO2 max or lactic threshold threshold or caffeine consumption, whatever it is. Like I don't fall into any of whatever the general population should fall into and um and i get the sense that i'm not the only one I, I i understand that there are other people that either have really high max heart rates that, that blow yeah. those those maxes out of the water which means that then their lactate threshold is higher their vo2 max is higher that all of those other metrics or those zones are higher yeah. or they have really really low max heart rates yeah and i'm talking not just pedestrian people or not just the super elite but i've i've seen quite elite individuals on both ends of the spectrum yeah uh, I totally agree yeah 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 because from the from the, um, from the various field testing beta testing that I've done with companies before I, I, I totally 100% agree to what you're saying um, for, for instance I have a, a smaller than normal heart okay. which um, which then but it's very strong and it beats a really high uh, heart rate okay so like my uh, VLT kind of my like um, like uh, heart rate equivalent to um, uh uh, anaerobic threshold mm -hmm. for me is surprisingly high okay. it'll be about 178 okay now 
if you take into account, you know, I'm 37, nearly 38 years old, um, it's not where you'd position that number. Mm-hmm. Um, and I totally agree with you. I remember seeing some some big data sets where there was a huge spread. I mean, there were people that, for their age, for their relatively young age, had some really low heart rates when they were operating at um, max aerobic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, their hearts just didn't really go anywhere. And then other people that were like, yeah, spiking off the off the chart. <laughs> so, like, yeah. yeah. I'm going to throw out a couple names. Some people, at least in North America, may recognize some of these these outliers. Um, I apologize that, you know, so far it's just been males talking, and I will use mostly male examples. It's not that we um, don't like women or don't feel like they have a space. We, we plan on having some some guests, uh, perhaps even our own wives, who are experts in, in these realms of art and science of running. Um, but I'm going to give some examples. One example, uh, the, the first person that really clued me in on training or racing by heart rate is a gentleman by the name of Gary Gellin. Gary is in his 50s. Uh, the very first 50 miler that I ran, uh, we were running together and Gary is known for being very um, particular about his heart rate and quite rigid about sticking to the heart rate. And I, I was in good shape. I, I had just run a marathon in sub 230 and I and in, in the trail and ultra world, if you can break three, you're going to probably be competitive in some ultras if you can just like maintain that, uh, that same level of fitness and translate it to the trails. Um, so I felt like I was going to be competitive, but there were some significant climbs, and uh, I'm from a really flat place. And so on the climbs, you know, I was huffing and puffing, and, and Gary, I honestly probably weigh like twice as much as the guy. Like he's, he's quite um, small. Um, and he comes from a cycling background. He's also a, a Stanford-educated engineer. So the guy knows his numbers. Um, recently, we've discussed his max heart rate, 205. He is in his 50s, and his max heart rate is 205, and his lactate threshold is in the 190s. Okay, that that totally takes that algorithm, and it's way out the window. You know, I mean, it it, it by 20, 30 beats kind of thing per uh, per minute. So. Uh, that being said, I, I didn't know what I was doing and I knew that Gary was good. Uh, cause I, I believe we had, uh, raced a uh, 50 K previously. And uh, again, he beat me at that one. Um, he's one of the best runners in North America, one of the best trail and ultra runners in ultra North America, not age groupers, runners period. And he's in his fifties and it's because he knows his body so well. And it's not just because he lists, not just because he follows an algorithm. He's, he knows the math for his body. He has taken, his own data sets and he's created his own ranges that he feels comfortable racing in and so uh, even though we hadn't trained together i just knew that he knew his body well and i figured he knew what he was doing and he he basically carried me to the finish of that race still beat me but and 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 to this day i don't think i've ever beat the guy at 50 miles or any distance um even though yeah on paper i should be able to like blow the doors off he just knows especially on the trails um he's very very good especially when there's climbing and things like that, but it's because he knows his body and he knows what those metrics mean for him. So yeah. he's taken his, his engineering background and his understanding of his own body to yeah. to, to determine those metrics. Um, and part of that, like, um, it, we could spin off, like, for so, so, so long on it, but part of it is to do, of course, with this, with how the heart even works. And so the heart has an electrical signal which will um, naturally 
oscillate anyway. So naturally, um, because of kind of like, uh, we call it like potential difference across the heart and stuff like that, then one part of the heart will relax and then another part contract. And, and that will happen even if we switch the brain off for some time, the heart can keep, still keep doing that for a little bit until, until um, such a point. Um, and, and then it's obviously the connection back to the deep part of the brain that is kind of the regulator of that. And so um, I often thought like in the past, because of some circumstances that happened around me, that it was as simple as just saying, oh, this is how big the heart is, and then it will kind of respond to its own size and that's it. But that wasn't taken into account just how powerful the deep brain is in its um, kind of automated um, control of systems. And so um, so with this guy, like, you know, he's got obviously got a very high heart rate for, for his age. And part of that could well be, if it's not just to do with the size of the heart, is just how his deep brain works and how and it's kind of, sort of thresholds of control over yeah over the heart yeah yeah no I, I don't doubt it at all he um, on on the trail and ultra world in the trail and ultra world I would say he's like the Alex um, Hanold you know like he he can go to places that most people can't and um, which I would consider a very high compliment, the highest compliment that I can pay him. Um, on the opposite end of the continuum, there are two guys our age uh, that live in Bend, Oregon. And um, one of them is Jesse Thomas. I had to run against Jesse in high school. Um, he went to one of the rival high schools. Um, he's since gone on to become a professional triathlete, founder of Picky Bar. He has an engineering background as well. He's really good with the numbers, but he's also really good at reading his body. And and uh, he and his wife, Lauren Fleshman, who is also one of the most decorated Stanford athletes um, mm. uh, and all-American, uh, multiple-time national champion in the 5K and things, um, they have a podcast called Work, Play, Love. And he talks about those numbers occasionally. And uh, and his, his uh, max is quite low relative to his age again he's he's not quite 40 and he's well below what that 220 minus the age should be which means that then his vo2 max and his lactate threshold and everything else is quite low um and yet he knows that about himself and he just he doesn't look at what the you know strava or the garmin or whatever the the watch is that he's using whatever the app tells him his ranges should be he knows He's, he's extrapolated that data and has determined what his actual ranges should be. He's created his own algorithms for himself. I, I'm going to mention another engineer, also in Bend, a guy named Max King. And he's he's one of yep. the most, uh, so a biochemical engineer, again, Cornell. <laughs> so we've got some Stanford, some Cornell engineers, all of them. Um, he's also one of, probably has the greatest range out of any distance runner on the planet you know he's won x terra trail world championships he's won spartan world championships at the 5k he's won the 100k world championships on roads uh, the guy is he, he was a you know a, a steeplechaser in the olympic trials like he can do it all and uh, and he's a very smart guy and i remember watching him at western states and he came by and and he was way out in front and the same thing happened at leadville he was way out in front by a long ways and people were saying, slow down, slow down, slow down. And he looked down at his watch and, you know, he, he was racing by heart rate and, and he was at 135, 135 beats per minute. And he was like, I can't run any slower. This is as phys- like physically as slow as I can possibly be moving. This is any slower would be super inefficient, but I'm, I'm like jogging here. And everyone's like, no, you're racing too hard. You're gonna blow up. He still eventually got fourth, but I mean, he was in the lead by a long ways. And I think due to metabolism and things like that, he, he was, had some issues with fueling, but in terms of his pace, everyone assumed that because he was running so fast, he was he was working too hard, and it was like, 
I can't physically move any slower than this. That any slower would be inefficient. And and again, that was based off of his understanding of his own data. And um, again, I, I share those examples because again, these are these are questions that we get daily about you know what should my ranges be and things like that. And this is what Garmin's telling me. This is what Strava's telling me. This is what Moose Count's telling me. Whatever it is. Um, yeah. And and it is just really important to mostly collect a bunch of data so that we can then after the fact, I mean, for a long time, (laughs) look back and say, okay, this is what your heart rate actually got to that latter half of the half marathon. That might be a good way to determine what your threshold is rather than just let some algorithm tell you this is what your threshold is. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And um, yeah, we kind of touched on this a little bit before because we had a previous podcast where we talked about GPS and that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And, um, and I very briefly mentioned power and, and, and the fact that power data isn't the be all and end all, uh, certainly on its own anyway, it's mm-hmm. um, it's just part of the mix of of the different um, uh, data that we can collect and interpret in context. And uh, you know, heart rate's part of that, obviously a big part of that. And um, but again, you know, kind of heart rate, yeah, has it has its context. And um, I guess you probably agree with me, like you know, whether you sleep well. I mean, it's essentially a reflection of the nervous system for mm-hmm. one part. So um, a lot of uh, there's been a lot of talk about HRV, you know, heart rate variability, and um, and a lot of work done in like um, really, really deeply analyzing what your heart's doing on any particular day, and then kind of tr- training to that level. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, there's there's some there's some real kind of legit v- validity behind that. And and that's the great thing about heart rate is it is actually telling you something physiological about your body mm-hmm. uh, if you want to listen to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I've kind of always had this philosophy of. Um, uh, on the slower runs, when you're trying to like make sure people don't just blow themselves up, mm-hmm. like on the slow runs, the things that are meant to be recovery runs, meant to be easy runs, mm-hmm. the the heart rate then really had has it has a good has a place there. Absolutely, because it's a way of like very quickly mm-hmm. bringing someone's attention to the fact that they're going too hard yeah. on a run that's not meant to be hard. Absolutely, um, especially in a group setting, uh, because sometimes the egos and the, the hormones and uh, at least for someone like me who doesn't train very often with other people, I get I get chatting like I do on the podcast, and I I lose track of you know what else is going on. I'm just excited to be around other people, and um, so that that can be a really important uh, piece. So I, if and when I use heart rate in training, I I use it typically to avoid crossing whether it's the ventilatory threshold or the lactate threshold or aerobic threshold. Yeah. Um, and, and and that's in both training and racing. I, I very rarely, I don't care what it says in terms of what my max is or or anything like that. I've I've had that tested in a lab, yeah. um, and, and actually we should probably discuss that a little bit. But um, I'm more concerned about just I I know that when I cross certain lines, yeah. that's going to impact my metabolism, mm. and and actually the the sustainability of whatever that effort is, and yeah. so. Um, and and for me it's it's lights out like mm. i i cross my my aerobic threshold or my lactate threshold and um it, it, you're supposed to be able to sustain that for about an hour sure if yeah. i cross it like i did this last weekend like i said like I, by 5k i was like oh man <laughs> this i had a backup gel in my back pocket yeah. for like an emergency i wish i had five of them i need <laughs> i need sugar i need salt like yeah. uh, my my legs are screaming, my lungs are screaming because I yeah. I would I had crossed that too soon. Yeah. I broke all the rules that I that I uh, 
recommend for my athletes, but I also wasn't paying attention to my heart rate. It was, it was so undulating and, and yeah, Eric was on my shoulder and I was racing, you know, <laughs> the gloves were off. And, and so we were having yeah. fun, but, uh, um, but that's because I know that about myself mm. when I have been in higher stakes races, yeah. uh, when, you know, I'm all in and all the chips are on the table. Yeah. I, I have to absolutely restrict myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I, I don't mean to talk all about myself, but th- probably the best, one of the best races I've ever run in my life with a heart rate monitor. Uh, that was with a chest strap. This was years ago. Um, this was when my watch battery didn't even last m- the entire duration of the race and it was only a 50 mile race. And so I think I have like five hours worth of data and the race lasted a little over six. And um, so my brother and I, it was one of our first ultras together and we ran together and he had driven all night to be there and... <laughs> So we were running together and, and two other guys just took off and it was an out and back course on the Pacific Crest Trail in, in Oregon. And, uh, so it was a double out and back actually. So by the 28 mile mark, when we were coming back through the start finish area, and then we were going to have to go out another 11 miles and come back 11 miles. Um, I was 28 minutes down. Like they had averaged over a minute per mile faster than than my brother and I. Mm. And uh, and we had taken our time. We stopped to fill up our bottles at every aid station, made sure we were eating and things like that. And these were legit guys. Like one of them has won Badwater before. One of them has won multiple other ultras. Like they're sponsored athletes, um, names in the sport, um, with a lot more experience than either of us. And I knew that my, based on... Uh, stuff that my brother and I had done, uh, in university we, we, in a, the exercise science lab that we did, um, we were the guinea pigs. And so we had a lot of data from, from that kind of thing. And I knew that my, my threshold, my lactate threshold was in the high one sixties. And, but I also know that if, and when I cross that, it's like, it will take me hours to recover from that. And I, I won't bounce back in, in the course of a race more than likely. And so even though there was quite a bit of climbing undulation in the course, I said, I'm absolutely not crossing 165. I want to try and run right at 160. And this was before, maybe my watch was capable of doing it, but I don't like learning how to do it. So I didn't put the beepers on or anything like that. I just made sure I was watching my, my heart rate. And I, I didn't, I, I've gone back and looked at the data and at least in the data that I have for the first 40, 45 miles, I didn't cross 160. And um, even though the guys were 28 minutes up uh, by the 50K mark or a little after the 50K mark, I've caught one guy off the side of the tra- trail, just like puking his guts out. Cause he, I don't even know if he was carrying a water bottle. Like he was just, you know, trying to prove a point and just pushing really hard. And again, nice guy, very accomplished, but he wasn't running smart. Um, and then the next guy, um, I, I was almost, or I, I, I caught him with like less than 5k to go. And so I actually remember cross, turning the corner, coming into the finish, and, and his son, like, was cheering because his dad had been in the lead the whole time, and his son cheered and was like, go, dad! And then, like, his face just turned ghostly white. And I wasn't his dad, you know? <laughs> um, and it, I felt bad, but then my son was there, and I got to finish with my son, you know? Um, and and I broke a well-established course record, like, that had previously been set by, I think, Ian Sharman, who's, you know, one of the best in the world at, at the ultra distances. Again, that's not because I'm super special. It's that I knew what my limits were and I didn't allow myself to cross that limit. I probably crossed that limit in the last five to 10 K where I didn't have the data, but I mean, it was all, I, I, I knew he was coming back to me and I, it was just kind of like, you know, I could taste blood. And, uh, 
but I wouldn't have even been in that position had I started with them. Even though I was the pace they were running, it was you know between six and six thirty miles, not blazing fast. But for fifty miles, that's on on trail. That's that's too fast for me, yeah. um, or or too hard for me to maintain that effort. And heart rate totally won the game, won the day that day. It wasn't me. It wasn't my watch even. <laughs> watch didn't last. But it was it was that we focused on nutrition and we focused on controlling our effort, and that that was a, a breakthrough for me. And, and that was because I think that was only my second 80 K or 50 mile race. The previous one was when, when Gary <laughs> uh, taught me about heart rate and yeah. again, he kicked my butt and, and I started listening and I, you know, so we've, we started that dialogue and, and he's since taught me other things about how to prepare for ultras as well. So I owe a lot to the, the mentors that I've had in the sport and, and the guys that I mentioned were either mentors or, or people that I've looked up to from a, from a, from afar. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, kind of interesting, like just uh, for people out there who kind of want something to take away. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, heart rate zones and that whole concept is um, it just keeps coming back and back and back, and you know, people people really talk about it a lot and ask a lot of questions about it. And what we're basically describing here is the fact that that is a sort of simplistic um, uh, model of or how how to look at it. Um, I mean, if you've got tons and tons of data to sort of back up your zones, that's different. But if the zones are what are basically given to you off a watch or off a training plan, off a, tra a training system or something like that, then it is very very simplistic. It doesn't take into account um, where your body's at and where your nervous system is at um, uh, at any given day. Um, so you can end up overtraining, undertraining on a given day. Um, and then the other thing that we're kind of touching on a little bit was uh, uh, whilst heart rate, I feel like it can be really useful on like making sure you don't train too hard on what's supposed to be an easy run. Equally, if you go to a really hard workout, so you go to short intervals, very high intensity, um, you know the heart rate's going to be all over the place. It's going to have a lag time associated with it. Um, you're going to be too busy to be staring at the watch anyway, yeah. and um, and so uh, so unfortunately, it kind of like adds up to um, there aren't sort of simple <laughs> there aren't sort of simple yeah. uh, uh, basic rules you can just stick to and have effective training, right? Yeah. There's um, you have to embrace. <laughs> embrace the complexity of it well and it, it's partially why i've there are some heart rate systems or some some training systems that are color based on some watches um, but it, but the training plans that i design i've i've intentionally tried to color code workouts or activities uh, based on uh, rate of perceived exertion yeah. certainly there is some overlap there yeah. i do it on a on a scale of one to ten there are scales of like three to 16, which I still haven't figured out how that works or whatever. Um, there, there are scales of zero to five. Uh, I like one to 10 because it, it gives room for all the different um, uh, effort levels. Certainly the, the overlay of heart rate works fine in there. It's mm. just that you can't take the cookie cutter overlay and drop it in there. Mm. And in the same way with my color code or the peak run performance color continuum that uh, we call it, um, I've, I've tried to have that airbrushed sort of like, this is between the zones. And, um, you know, we may get into more discussion, um, about 80, 20 training and things like that. And, um, and even that there, they talk about polarizing the training and, and, and a lot of that does come from <laughs> full circle Nordic skiing and the, and the cross country ski, uh, models. And, and they are very, uh, heart rate based the, their training models but a lot of that 80 20 stuff that, that matt fitzgerald and um 
gleaned from Stephen Saylor, um, who's a who's an American living in Norway. Um, much of their research, it, it wasn't so much um, this is how you should train. It's this is how the best endurance athletes in the world, whether they're Nordic skiers, rowers, or uh, East African uh, runners, this is this seems to be what they're doing. Um, that's based on heart rates, um, but but again, that's it's a lot of data and a lot of that that, that they're um, using to come to these conclusions. It's not just hey they they were using the cookie cutter algorithm that that you learn about in you know middle school health or something like that. You know, yeah. That is uh, universally accepted as like the gospel truth, uh, by most technology companies. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. So that's, uh, episode six on heart rate and, um, some of the other, uh, technologies. Again, we're, we're in favor of the technology, but like all tools, um, you need to, you need to read the owner's manual and understand the limitations of it and just try and figure out how to use it as part of your toolkit. Awesome. Do you want to add anything on before I stop about, because um, you always add something on about social media. and Sure, like yeah. Um, sorry. So once again, you can, um, you can listen to the Art and Science of Running podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or essentially anywhere else where you can find podcasts. Uh, we'd really appreciate it if you would listen, rate, and review the show. Let us know how we're doing. Let your friends know uh, if a particular episode might interest them. Um, please subscribe, and uh, this will help others hear about what uh, we're trying to share as, as a free resource to the world. Um, and if you want to follow us on social media... We're on Facebook as Art and Science of Running. Um, there's, a, there's a page and a group. So if you'd like to be part of the interacting with the group, there's an Art and Science of Running group. It's, it's open to the public. And that's where we'll, we get some of these questions that we discuss um, in addition to just the work that we do day-to-day -day with athletes. Also, we're on Instagram and on Twitter. So if you just do a search for the Art and Science of Running. Um, and then our website is artsciencerun.com. And uh, we're, we feel like there's a need for these t conversations amongst ourselves, but also um, with some of the other experts that we're able to bring in. And so we welcome your questions and hope that these are helping. So.